Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. Jordan, what's up, man? It's pregame time. You want to warm things up. Usually we like to warm things up uh, to each episode of the podcast with something on the lighter side, right? Like just kind of a Twitter debate or something about, you know, LeBron versus Jordan or something trivial like that. Uh, We're actually starting with some kind of heavy news as it pertains to intercollegiate athletics. Stanford, at the time that we're recording this, this is breaking news. Stanford has announced that the cutting of 11 varsity sports are going to be taking place for the upcoming athletic season, which includes men's volleyball, an overwhelmingly successful program for the Cardinal. That impacts overall these cuts, 240 there and about student athletes, over 20 coaches, as well as many support staff members. The school is, to their credit, honoring all the current athletes on scholarship. Uh, But it is a sign of the times, right? It is uh, unfortunate and makes you think if Stanford, Jordan, which had a reported endowment of $27 billion last year, is resorting to these kinds of cuts due to fiscal concerns because of the impact of the pandemic, how nervous should mid-major institutions and really college sports overall be feeling right now? It was eye-popping this morning, um, you know, just before we started recording. Uh, I saw it on the, the local news, and, and I think it's a big deal here, right? Men's volleyball and the connection between men's volleyball and the state of Hawaii and just some of their national championship teams. Uh, Kupono Brown, who was a recent Iolani graduate, is a recent signee with the men's volleyball program there uh, in Palo Alto. Uh, and so if Stanford, right, if Stanford University, this, this pillar of academia and, and quite honestly, athletic excellence, right, um, that's got a pretty deep bank account. And that endowment is no joke. Uh, if they are having to cut some programs by the wayside, and, and right, it's a lot of non-revenue generating sports. It's a lot of the quote-unquote Olympic sports. I get that. But if, if Stanford can't support some of those sports, right, if you're a mid-major program with men's volleyball or you're a mid-major program with men's wrestling or even, you know, sailing some of the sports that, that the University of Hawaii sponsors right in terms of sailing and men's volleyball and and maybe Hawaii's in a pretty you know unique situation with the fact that they turn a profit from their men's volleyball program but I mean it's got to be a giant wake-up call right if you're if you're just a casual fan working around here uh, if you're if you're a fan of your program and it's like wow if if this can happen to Stanford um, they can happen to to anybody Uh, and I think it's just a kind of a huge reminder that uh, this is this is pretty dire times. 
Yeah. And the reason why we single out men's volleyball, obviously, is because of the importance of that sport here locally. Uh, and also the fact that you have, as you alluded to, a very strong Hawaii connection to that specific program. But they did uh, include uh, other programs within these cuts like rowing, wrestling. They had about 36 sports programs, which I think is either tied or right there next to Ohio State for the most uh, varsity programs within their athletics department. So uh, this is significant. And, and yeah, I think, you know, Stanford is that shining symbol of what institutions of higher learning, uh, both academically and athletically, can and should aspire to be and represent. Uh, and so this should be pretty shaking, the sign of the times. All right, I want to welcome you to this episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we are very excited about our guest, Doug Glanville, uh, who has been a very prominent voice through his writing, through his on-air contributions here over the last weeks and months with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, how it pertains to the world of sports. Uh, this is a guy who played nine years in Major League Baseball. He was a member of your beloved Chicago Cubs organization, Jordan, now an on-air analyst. He's an author, a community advocate. Uh, he also co-hosts a weekly podcast with Jason Stark called Starkville. And he penned a couple of recent articles for various uh, media outlets uh, about racial inequality and how, at least in an article that was posted today on ESPN.com, uh, Major League Baseball can maybe take some steps to confront systemic racism. So we'll get into that and some of his projections about this upcoming baseball season, which is scheduled to start in just a couple of weeks, July 23rd. Uh, we'll get some of his thoughts on that. So we look forward to that, but let's get to our game time. And it is Aloha Fordham. Fordham canceling its football game with the University of Hawaii. And it's an FCS program from the Patriot League, which was scheduled to play at Aloha Stadium September 12th. The league had previously put out a mandate barring teams from traveling via flight to competitions due to safety concerns over COVID-19. Uh, and I guess my question to you, Jordan, is do you suspect this to be the first of more dominoes to fall in the UH football schedule? They are scheduled to open the season at Arizona. Yeah, if you can't fly here, um, that's that kind of eliminates any possibility of a, of a team coming down, right? And and their league eliminated that, and and so I I would say any non Mountain West Conference game is very much up in the air. I mean, when you're just considering obviously what's going on at the University of Arizona, right, with some of their issues and shutting down facilities and, and athletes testing positive for COVID and, and things of that nature. But I mean, you're talking about three Pac-12 schools on the schedule for the University of Hawaii. Uh, we already know the Fordham game is off the table. Uh, New Mexico State, which is supposed to take place October 10th at Aloha Stadium. Who knows if that's going to go down. I, I really think non-conference games are 50-50 at best for, for not just the University of Hawaii, but especially with our you know distance from just about everybody else. But as conferences move, right? Uh, we're talking about the Patriot League and, and how they're really limiting travel. Uh, you hear the Ivy League just about ready to make the move to a spring schedule. Uh, I think some of the Power Five conferences could very well look at moving seasons or limiting travel uh, to minimize the risk, if you will. And so whatever the Mountain West does, I'd imagine they're going to do so as a cohort. But I think the likelihood of non-conference games, not just for the University of Hawaii, for, but for everybody, uh, are dwindling just because of the spikes everywhere across the country. Look, as cases go up, uh, the season itself is in jeopardy. Uh, maybe they can move it to the spring, but if that's the case, right, you're going to kind of leave your, your non-conference matchups and agreements on the table. 
you know, the UH football program has welcomed its players onto campus and they are taking part in uh, certain team and group workouts. Uh, but yeah, it, it doesn't give you any further sense of confidence or security that this college football season is going to play out on schedule in the way that it was intended. Uh, and that leads us to another discussion that has gained momentum. We talked with Eddie Klineski in our last episode uh, about some of the discussion at the prep level of maybe considering the option of moving the football season into the spring to buy some time. And there seems to be a rising level of discussion as it pertains to the collegiate level of football as well. That becomes more of an option just under these circumstances, possibly out of desperation and necessity. Should this be considered a realistic option, Jordan? I think so at all levels, right? I think some states on the mainland have already made the decision to go there um, and move it to the spring. I, I get waiting, right? I understand prolonging the decision as long as you can, um, because if, if there's some way to get it in in the fall, then then you go ahead and do so. Uh, you know, we talked to Eddie Klineski uh, of Damien. He, he brought up the concern of, of a, a spring-fall sort of back-to-back season, if you will, with just summer off. Um, but I think there are ways to, to work around some of those concerns. I think there are valid concerns. Uh, but the spring has to be more and more of a, a realistic option as, as we get closer and closer to what, what is the original start date for, the, for a lot of these leagues, if you will, at the college and, and even below levels. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's going to create a very jumbled and scrambled type of atmosphere leading up to the football season. And a lot of things are going to have to change. There's going to be a ton of moving parts if they move football to the spring. Uh, how does it affect the draft? How does it affect the transition to pro football for several prospects? And like you said, and, and Eddie Klineski was talking about that sort of shortened off season. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do, especially when you're talking about such a money generating sport football being such a revenue feeder to other programs within the athletics department. Uh, if that thing cannot take place in any form at any time throughout this athletic year, uh, that is going to be something that sends shockwaves, financially speaking, even if it is not ideal, even if it just is going to be a complete and utter mess from a strategizing and planning standpoint. It's already like that. Like it's already a jumbled mess. Football is such a behemoth. It is that big. It is, financially speaking, that important. Speaking of football and finances, uh, Patrick Mahomes. I guess he's like old Patrick Mahomes. Uh, he's being given a 10-year contract extension with the Kansas City Chiefs. Worth over $500 million. Super Bowl title MVP already under his belt, 24 years old. So, Jordan, is he worth the investment? Yes. Yes, he probably is worth more, um, right? It's like, you know, the, the amount of guaranteed money is, is astronomical. The amount of incentive laid in some of those guaranteed roster bonuses. Uh, it's a pretty creative contract. Uh, there are some economics involved that are above uh, my very uh, layman understanding when they, they figure all these things out. Will he play out all the years of the contract? I don't know, right? But uh, it is a commitment from the Kansas City Chiefs to a guy that only has played three professional seasons that has basically only started two professional seasons and has had unprecedented success like we've never seen. Uh, I, I, I think he's that good. I think he's already that accomplished. Um, it, it, I, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about, hey, as big as that number looks, uh, when you break down some of the, the salary cap hits and percentages, like it's, it's a fairly team-friendly deal, uh, which I was like, what? 
how does how does that work, right? I mean, if if you're if you're potentially paying this guy half a billion dollars, uh, that's supposedly team friendly. But I think his largest cap hit, if you look at it, is like twenty percent. And when you're calculating quarterback salaries, uh, that's really not that much uh, compared to some of the other big contracts that have been given out over the years to signal callers. So. Yeah, I think it's a win-win, it seems, for, for these two in terms of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and I think for Pat Mahomes, he is, he is that good. Like, and, and he's scratching the surface, right? Barely. Dude's three years of professional. He's already got an MVP and a Super Bowl championship. Um, and now the expectations are through the roof, no doubt about that. But uh, I think what they found, his dynamism when it comes to playing that quarterback position, why not lock this guy up, right, for, for as long as you can? Do you only capture that kind of magic once every 10 years, maybe? Uh, and to have this combination of Patrick Mahomes, who has that combination of skills, uh, with Andy Reid and his philosophy and the way he goes about constructing an offense, uh, that's magic, man. Like, that combination is something that can reap rewards for years to come. And we talk about, hey, look, there's a difference between discussing the greatest of all time because that's more of a resume type of thing versus who's the best quarterback you've ever seen with your own eyes. And I would argue that already three years in, I don't know if we've seen anything better than Patrick Mahomes, just as a quarterbacking force in the NFL with all the different things he can do. And like I said, it is just that kind of magical concoction him with the offensive genius that has been credited to Andy Reid. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are sitting pretty. Deshaun Watson even said it on Twitter. You're talking about Patty Mahomes. There's more Super Bowls to come for this guy. That is almost a guarantee, barring any kind of weird outside factor or injury. Uh, this dude is going to rack up some trophies. So, yeah, pay the man. He's making so much money, Mike Trout's going to be asking to borrow money. <laughs> From Pat Mahomes. All right, uh, Bubblicious, our last topic here. Several NBA teams reporting to the bubble in Orlando this week as we continue to build toward the hopeful return of the NBA at the end of the month. Uh, there are going to be no fans, and you already have several players, especially with the Brooklyn Nets, Spencer Dinwiddie, who tested positive, uh, DeAndre Jordan, Avery Bradley with the Lakers, and others already declining to participate. So what is this version of NBA hoops going to look and feel like, and how many asterisks should we have ready for the eventual champ if they make it that far? Yeah, it's so hard to tell, right? I, I, I am not one of those uh, that are anticipating anything high, high level right when we come back. I, I think there are a fair amount of people, myself included, that are, are, are anticipating, you know, a little ragged play to begin um, the bubble experiment, if you will, just because it's been hard, right, for these guys to get into game shape, just get into, you know, uh, everyday five-on-five -five activity. It's going to take a little while. It, there, there's going to be some sort of asterisk, right? I mean, there has to be because it's going to be a different scenario uh, than what we normally see in an NBA season. Um, and, and I think there is just, there are going to be elements to it that are going to surprise us, you know, whether it's playing in these giant, you know, convention center type setups, uh, playing in some of these empty little arenas, the wide world of sports, whether it's, you know, somebody on a team having to depart because, Heck, you know, they tested positive or something like that. There are going to be elements um, that maybe aren't completely unforeseen, but that will pop up, right, as we go through this, that will probably sway things quite considerably. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what to, I don't know what kind of denotation uh, belongs at the end of the season or after the champion um, is crowned in terms of the record books, uh, but, but something will be warranted.
Yeah, you had the basketball tournament, right, that aired on ESPN this past weekend. And so that was maybe a bit of a preamble to what we're going to see from the NBA, where there aren't any fans. It's very quiet. You hear a lot of the chatter on the floor, which I kind of dig. But what was really weird was the TBT, the start of one of the days of games, uh, and the broadcast of it was backed up, or what they referred to as being gypped. It was backed up. The start time had to be delayed because the cornhole championships ran long. And I'm like, what is the world we're living in <laughs> where we have the basketball tournament getting preempted by cornhole? Um, maybe we'll run into a situation like that with the NBA. Hopefully not. But it's going to look and feel very different. And, yes, there will be an asterisk applied. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I think if they go ahead and they finish this thing out, uh, they've played enough of the season where there is at least a legitimate sort of track record in terms of wins and losses. Uh, and I think whoever wins, uh, it will be a hard-fought and well-deserved trophy, even if there is an asterisk to distinguish that it is maybe the most unique NBA championship trophy of all time. All right, time to get to our Domino's Hawaii main topping. And we're going to be talking with Doug Glanville. We had him on our radio show a few years ago, uh, and he's back with us here for this episode of the podcast. The dude played nine years in Major League Baseball. He's an on-air analyst, author, community advocate. Uh, he hosts a weekly podcast with Jason Stark called Starkville uh, and has recently written what I would consider some very prominent and important articles on what we are experiencing in terms of the discourse on race relations penned a recent article for the undefeated entitled the comma effect on bias and black lives which talked a little bit about his being racially profiled despite uh, him being uh, this incredibly successful human being in so many different facets and another piece that was posted today on espn.com five things major league baseball can do right now to confront systemic racism we'll talk about that with him as well as a little bit of a measurement on what he anticipates from the start of the major league baseball season which is scheduled for july 23rd let's go ahead and play that interview with doug landville hey doug great to talk with you once again and uh, thanks for being with us oh my pleasure you know always uh a great to get a little vacation mind of Hawaii. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, you know, Connecticut isn't, doesn't have the, exactly the uh, palm trees and the tropical weather here, but, uh, but still doing pretty well. How are you? Uh, we're doing all right. Yeah, this is kind of the only realistic way to, to travel to Hawaii now is, is via Zoom <laughs> or some kind of conference call. That's just the reality of the situation. But we do want to obviously get to some nuts and bolts baseball discussion with you. Uh, but I want to talk first about uh, just some of what you've written about here in the last few weeks and months, and particularly a column that was posted on ESPN.com today, five things Major League Baseball can do right now to confront systemic racism. Now, you have long been an advocate for athletes and people who are in the sports realm uh, of speaking their mind and speaking their mind on social and racial injustices. And here you are in this column essentially laying out a blueprint for how Major League Baseball as an organization can do the same. Why do you see that as such an important step for Major League Baseball as a whole to take? You know, it, well, it takes the next step. It, it moves the conversation to sort of an action plan. And, um, you know, because we know, you know, often there's statements that come out and the reactions are there, but the interest can wane. Uh, you know, we're clearly uh, coming back with sports slowly. And if that goes well, there are a whole other things uh, that can distract us or keep us talking in sports world. You know, now it becomes, you know, the Lakers versus the Bucks or, you know, and uh, as you get back into some semblance of normalcy or normal, you, um, you can tend to, 
uh, not put your foot on that accelerator and, and stay on something that is so pressing and, and so important to our society. So I think I was trying to establish a way forward to, you know, think through a lot of things that I've looked in over the years uh, to, you know, provide a, a, a guide or some reference point as to possible steps to consider. Well, one of the steps that you included, which I found uh, pretty interesting, was talking about using analytics in a different way. Baseball, obviously, one of the sports that is very much associated with new data and analytics and those kinds of measurements. But you're saying, hey, look, there are ways to measure even the biases that may be associated within the business of baseball. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that aspect of your column? Right. I mean, you think about how baseball has developed, you know, analytics has always been part of the game, but now it's, it's a whole industry as to how baseball operates, decision-making, it's woven into the culture, shift defenses, all the things that we've seen so quickly become a norm to the game. And that has involved a lot of data involvement. It's, it's involved a lot of analysis that looks at, you know, every possible way to find value. In, in a system. There's algorithms for coaching decisions. I mean, it goes that deep. And so my thought was, hey, you know, let's take all this data, let's take all this effort to find value and elevate the value of our diversity, elevate the value of inclusion, and, and turn some of those uh, design strategies towards this goal that we, uh, at least baseball is professing that, hey, we want this goal of inclusion uh, point it to evaluate some of the systems that are in place that are flawed and that actually create disparity. And, and so that was a way to look at baseball strength and, and use it as a way to address some of these pressing issues. And, you know, you know, they look, they measure bias, they measure uh, margins of error. There's all kinds of ways you can look at it. Now take that data and apply it to hiring practices or advancement in the system. Uh, as we look at, the highest levels of baseball and diversity. So I thought that that's a, a way quickly that they can just rethink how their analytics world can work in their advantage uh, to really address some of these issues. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting and fascinating stuff in, in attacking problems in new ways. Uh, Doug, you're also pretty involved with the uh, Major League Baseball Alumni Association. Um, that group, has there been conversation amongst that group with, with a lot of prominent voices and, and working with Major League Baseball itself or with the current Players Union um, in, in implementing some of these ideas that uh, you lay out in that ESPN column? Well, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're not really. I mean, I think the alumni, um, you know, now I'm working more on the alumni services side. So that, <clears throat> excuse me, that involves a lot to do with the um, transition. So you think about like uh, looking for job, job interviewing, placement, sort of that second career. So now this is the conversation that is, is going to be front and center. Now we did have a diversity committee uh, that was mostly involving, you know, myself and some of the sort of veteran players, African-American players, uh, you know, a couple of players from other backgrounds to try to work together. And, uh, but to actually transition to something that is addressing this tall order of what is systemic uh, that involves a whole lot more uh, collaboration and, and discussion and really, as I mentioned, some even the data dive. So uh, that is an important conversation that needs to be raised because, you know, even in your post-career, as I've you know, written about a lot, you, you confront some of these challenges. It doesn't 
you know, that, that sort of uniform of baseball is not coverage for you in, in involving race in America. You still are navigating very challenging circumstances. And absolutely, as an alumni organization, and of course, Major League Baseball and the Players Association, it really will take all that uh, capital to consider what is the best ways to uh, you, know, you know, continue to be more inclusive and achieve these goals to welcome what is actually a very diverse sport. Yeah, you, you touch on something there, uh, Doug, the, you know, the uniform of baseball and, and how that can, um, you know, be a, a sort of a qualifier for, for players of color. And, and after baseball's over, right, that goes away. And you, you kind of touch on that. And I, I was really um, gripped by your column in the, on the undefeated um, called the comma effect uh, on bias in black lives. And, and you talk about this, this comma effect, the, the grammatical pause. And, and we talk about some of the big systemic, uh, I think blatantly obvious things that, that when it comes to racism and there are some of these more subtle things um, that, that maybe aren't brought up enough. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I was open to um, in, in reading your column and some of the, the things that you share and just how, you know, there's a lot of these things where everybody sort of gets categorized, right, for better or worse, um, that comma effect. If you kind of just explain that a little bit and, and, and how that has, um, you know, maybe been an undercurrent uh, to a lot of these uh, systemic problems we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, we, we tend to uh, focus on the debate over what are these neon sign billboards uh, acts of racism, right? We, it's like, oh, someone, you know, burned a cross on my lawn or, you know, someone used the N-word. I mean, so yes, we understand that that overt nature is very, uh, you know, it's very powerful in recognizing this exists. However, what sometimes gets lost is all the subtleties and all the nuance. And, and because you think about how, for example, baseball even trying to address it, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to donate this here. I'm going to do that. Uh, those are easy solutions. Uh, it's, it's more about what is sustainable. And a lot of that, those fixes can be very temporary because they are easy. Right? You want to try to find ways that this can move into a direction that you can keep it going. And, I, and what I was trying to uncover in the comma effect is some of those ways that you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, as, as a man of color, going through this world, I listed examples through the lens of baseball of moments that I've had where it, it could have gone one way or the other. And I was, you know, given sort of the, the, the negative and, and because the negative had been racialized in our society to say, Oh, well, you know, of course you're going to take this criminal step, or of course you are uh, suspicious or you fit the description or whatever it is in a lot of different moments that aren't mainstream, that aren't uh, billboard sign racism. They're just subtle, micro level uh, slights that have these racial overtones or undertones. And uh, so, you know, one example, you know, I was drafted by the Cubs in 1991 and within weeks of being drafted, I got called in the office and uh, my, my coaching staff said, Hey, you need to sit down. So I sit down and I see four baseballs on the, on the desk and they didn't really start off with much of a evidence hearing or they went right into, uh, we don't appreciate you stealing our baseballs. Like, you know, just, and I'm, no, so I was just drafted. This is my dream. And I'm accused of stealing baseballs. And all these baseballs, by the way, were mine and they weren't even from the league. And it didn't stop them from double downing on thinking that I stole them, even when I actually presented evidence. So, you know, it, it's, it's those kinds of things and it can happen uh, in so many different ways. So although 
you know, George Floyd and law enforcement, those are obvious because uh, you're talking about, you know, life and death and humanity and killing and murder and all these things. But what is not obvious is housing policy or, or school uh, enrollment or, you know, how subtle things happen on, you know, something as simple as a, a wait list to, uh, you know, a high school or whatever. There's so many little things in my life. Uh, I've had so many nightmares just buying a house. I've had nightmares going to get a car. I, had, I went to a dealer one time and they told me that they lost the keys because they didn't want to give me a test drive. They thought I was a joyrider. You know, so, I mean, and so I don't want to belabor the point of all of us have these experiences of feeling slighted, but the racial implications uh, needs to be understood more. So part of it is acknowledging that big and small, these are effects that as a, a black man in America, we experience all the time, every day. And, and that is a understanding that as the Red Sox acknowledge that racism exists, those are big steps to move forward because you first have to identify what you're facing. And if you're looking through different lenses and not communicating in the same language, you're already off to a bad start. How important is portrayal in all of that? There's been a lot obviously discussed and said about uh, the tearing down of certain statues that may represent a, um, you know, a, a much maligned uh, era in our country's history. You have the discussion that has fired up once again about the changing of the Washington uh, NFL team's nickname, and that introduces perhaps uh, another debate to come for the Cleveland Indians and maybe some other organizations. Uh, but portrayal of some of the more marginalized or previously disenfranchised uh, demographics within our society. How important is that to what you're talking about in just taking steps towards the everyday uh, course correction of who we give benefits of the doubt to and just how we relate to one another in general? It's, it's hugely important. And, and you talk about some level of symbolism, right? Why are we uh, going over, you know, statues and reconsidering? But that's what generations do. Time marches on. And we always have to provide that power empowerment of our generation to define uh, how and how they're embracing history. And, you know, history is a story. It's written. And of course, if you have power, you tell your own narrative. You justify itself through your stories and through your legacy. And so the Vikings interpretation of, of England and its formation is very different than the British or the English or, you know, you know so then, then obviously before England was unified. So you have to respect that as we get more awareness and more understanding and we want to define our future, we do have to look at the past differently. And, we, and although there's a chronology to it, there's also an interpretive component to it that weaves into our, our modern society. And, and so when you're bringing everyone in the table who's made that history and they're clamoring for that opportunity and recognizing their contributions to uh, a great country, then yes, it's important to uh, have everybody at the table and acknowledge those contributions and also go back and look at how history has stifled groups of people. And, and so, you know, when you have representation, you have a voice at the table. And I don't mean color by numbers because we see that a lot. Oh, we're going to add this guy to the board and he's not going to say anything and we're not going to listen to him. Uh, but we're going to say we have diversity. No, we're talking about real inclusive work here. And, and, and that will actually address a lot of the challenges of these unilateral decisions that are so homogeneous and so narrow in scope. Uh, and that's not a slight to anyone who, uh, you know, has a certain background. It's just to say, we all need to kind of be able to embrace uh, our diversity in a way that's not just at 
a certain level, but included where power resides. Uh, and that is why baseball, for example, uh, struggles at that upper echelon with ownership and really the high level decision makers are homogeneous. And, and that, that has become problematic as right down to hiring and firing and, and even emphasis on what analytics to evaluate talent. So, uh, so there's a lot of work to do, but 100% it's important to be represented. Yeah, it is impossible then to segue from such a profoundly important subject to then more the, the nuts and bolts of, of just the game of baseball uh, here as we approach opening day scheduled for July 23rd, this abridged version of the Major League Baseball season. We have seen in some corners uh, a pretty fair amount of skepticism about whether or not this thing is going to launch in the way that they intend it to uh, and if it is going to finish out in the way that is also intended. Uh, where do you stand in your level of hope that this goes according to plan? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, there's a high level of concern, and there should be. We, you know, as a nation, we don't have command of this. We don't. And so we can't say what's going to happen and this is going to work. And, we, we, you know, it's a lot of experimentation. And, of course, it's scary because experimentation, we're talking about people's lives, livelihoods, safety, and health. And, and so, yes, they are doing uh, a lot that they can do. They're doing everything they can. And they're recognizing that there might be setbacks. There might be uncertainty. Players are going to opt out. And uh, if enough players run into trouble on a team, you might lose some games on the schedule. Uh, but they're trying to set a tone. And, of course, I'm rooting for it to work because I think baseball has a great opportunity here to set an example, to uh, disclose what they learn about the virus, to be able to uh, chart a certain way forward in a unified front that is inclusive but also educational about uh, what they're taking on uh, you know and especially as we you know see baseball as you know, a sense of comfort uh, although I you know we know that baseball is non-essential in the grand scheme of things but what is essential is the concept of team for our country right now we need to find that we need to get off of our polarization we need to find uh, you know these ideological wars exhausting and move on to coming together more and any example we have, sport is always important in that example, uh, that we can show that we're working together despite our differences. Uh, that is a positive. And uh, so I'm hopeful it will work, but uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of hiccups already. And I imagine we're going to have setbacks before we move forward. Yeah, and Doug, um, I, I know we're uh, running a little short on time, but I was going to kind of selfishly squeeze in a Cubs-related question because I'm a, <laughs> a big Cubs fan. Uh, I still have uh, some fond memories of 2003, uh, yeah. for sure. Some, some nightmares as well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're an analyst for Marquee Sports Network. Uh, what, what do you, if we do play out this season, what do you make of the Cubs' chances, and, and where are they kind of as a franchise? We know that there are some big contracts that may or may not come on the horizon for some of their key guys, a la Chris Bryant. They're, they're trying to get that pitching staff revamped once again. Uh, but uh, kind of uh, that's my general Cubs question for you since we got you on the line. Yeah, I mean, look, they have a fantastic core of, of players. You know, you talk about Chris Bryant and Javi Baez and Wilson Contreras. And I mean, this is an exciting group. And, uh, you know, just to keep them together is important. Well, this year they'll clearly have that opportunity. And uh, provided the, the games go as, as hoped, uh, this is a team that has a huge upside. You know, the pitching is, is on the senior side, and, uh, you know, they, they showed some wear and tear at the end of the season, but there's still, there's still a lot of talent there. 
And, uh, and, and I think what's so interesting now is when you have David Ross as a manager, this is a new world. And he's dealing with his first major league season in a pandemic <laughs> with, with some level of social unrest. But he's actually a great fit for that because he's familiar. He, he played with these players. He knows them. So he didn't have that learning curve. He's trusted. He's respected. And, and he's probably a guy who's uh, always shown this optimism about trying new things. You know, he, he, he can do that. So I, that's, that's an asset right now, and which is why I think the Cubs will make some noise this season. Uh, if they're healthy, provided, you know, everybody's on the field, they, they have, a, you know, great ability. And those guys who are getting older, you know, their window is closing, but it's not closed yet. Is there a team composition that may have an advantage in this kind of shortened 60-game regular season format? I mean, the Nats threw 50 games were 12 games below 500 last year, so they yeah. needed the full 162 to, to really calibrate for their World Series run. Uh, is it more the, the veteran-laden teams? Is it maybe the, the younger uh, teams in terms of age? Who you give an advantage to under these circumstances? You know, it's, it's tough to say, but I know you, you need to get out of the gate really quickly <laughs> really quickly uh because as you prove you know the nationals were, were they would be long eliminated with the start they had last year and that's one component you know a team like the rays they're interesting to me because they've been analytics gurus they found value under a rock and they have gotten off to good starts and the long season sometimes catches up to them but teams like the yankees or red Sox, you know whatever the favorites are they you know they, they they've limped before out of the gate and if they do, you know, a team like the Rays, these teams can, can sneak in there. And because they're constantly finding matchup advantages, that they work so in a granular level, that that will be a huge advantage in a sprint. Because this is not a marathon anymore. You've got to get out and rush. And, you know, nobody's getting days off and you've got to go. That could work very well because they're so good at matchups. They're so good at it. And, uh, and so I, I'd watch teams like that. The fun part of this season is the innovation, the trying new things, and the fact that truly every team is in it. Because who knows who starts off 25 and 10? That, they could be a world champion. And that's kind of what makes it fun. Well, Doug, we appreciate your time, certainly. Thanks for being so generous with it. And uh, under these circumstances here in 2020, your writing, your contributions uh, have been of the utmost importance and uh, truly valuable, I think, for all of us. So thanks again, man. Absolutely. My pleasure. You guys do a fantastic job. So call me anytime. All right. Big thanks to Doug Glanville. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll have our post game best and worst. For our listeners on the Valley Isle, the Maui Flag Football League is on this summer, starting as early as July 1st. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups, representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, big thanks to Doug Glanville once again. Let's uh, hit our post game up here, Jordan. Best and worst. What's your best here for this episode of the podcast? Yeah, my best. Uh, saw uh, some of the the viral video that came out of the uh, University Athletic um, University of Hawaii Athletic Department 
Uh, it's basically a bunch of uh, UH athletes, uh, including some of the, the local kids, right, that are now playing for the Rainbow Warriors or Wahine, Shevin Cordero, the quarterback for the football team, Kairohana Wahine, one of the defensive specialists, liberos for the Rainbow Wahine volleyball team, uh, basically urging fellow students, peers, people in the community to go out and register to vote. Uh, and I thought that was terrific, right? We're, we're seeing a bigger push, especially at the collegiate level, uh, to get young adults more engaged in the civics process, if you will, in the, the political election process, which I think in itself is a very apolitical thing, right? It's like, hey, go out and vote. Kudos to the University of Hawaii for being conscious of that effort uh, there on social media. All right, my best. Sometimes greatness is born out of desperation. And when Gilbert Burns had to pull out of UFC 251 on Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, it left the headlining welterweight title match one fighter short. So who do they get to put up against the champ, Kamaru Usman, this weekend is one of our faves. Jorge Masvidal, who through his surging popularity and very cool style and certainly his trash talk, uh, has probably been knocking on the door, uh, deserving of a title shot for some time. And he is taking the fight on short notice. And I, for one, Jordan Helling, I know you share in this sentiment, cannot wait. No, I'm way more excited. I mean, to be quite honest, and, and I would imagine you probably feel the same way, like nothing against Gilbert Burns. Um, but I'm way more excited that it's Masvidal yeah. in this Fight Island debut fighting for that welterweight title. Like, I, I, I was hoping it was going to be him from the beginning. Uh, and again, I, you know, I hope Gilbert Burns is all right and recovers uh, expediently. But um, Masvidal, come on. Like, that's, that's the draw. That's what I'm here for. Sharon, of course, the, the headlining placard with uh, Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky as well. So uh, looking forward to that, Jorge Masvidal. Uh, I'm a big fan. It's about time for that guy. And I think a lot of the talk is uh, he's just one of those guys that's always training. So even though he's taking the fight on short notice, he's not really taking the fight on short notice because he kind of trains as though he's training for a fight all the time. That's what he has said. More power to him. All right, what's your worst? Yeah, my worst, uh, I'm going to kind of bookend this one uh, or this episode uh, kind of putting together the notes, and this was before the Stanford news, but uh, late last week, uh, Boise State also announced that they were cutting some programs, including the baseball program uh, that had Hawaii on the schedule that had been on hiatus for like 30 years. Uh, they brought them back. This was the first season back in decades. They played, what, 20 games. Season got canceled by COVID, and then uh, now they're announcing that they're getting rid of baseball again. And I, uh, I thought, man, that's, that is a tough blow, right? You put all this effort, all these resources into reviving the program, which to be fair came at the expense of what was a, a pretty popular men's wrestling program at Boise State. That went by the wayside to bring back baseball. They're also cutting women swimming and diving, which is also not that old of a program. Uh, was started in the early 2000s. Uh, a fellow Baldwin graduate, Jennifer Cahill, is like one of the most successful distance swimmers in Boise State swimming history. Uh, so I saw some of, uh, you know, her tweets and thoughts on the process. So, um, yeah, what a bummer, man. I mean, we're seeing this all over the country. Stanford obviously is going to grab a lot of headlines. But, uh, you know, uh, a fellow Mountain West Conference member for the University of Hawaii. Yeah, a lot of Hawaii connections between those two programs, yeah. both the swimming and diving program as well as uh, the baseball program of yesteryear. And then uh, the short-lived return. Yeah, it's getting dicey, man. It's definitely disconcerting, that's for sure. Uh, my worst, this is going to be very quick. Kanye West announcing his intention to run for president. That's all I need to say about that, I think. All right, so thanks to Doug Landfield for joining us here on this episode of the podcast. Hit us up on Twitter, at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Until next time, Jordan, have a good one. Talk to you soon. See you, man.